Our reading this morning is Psalm 31. Psalm 31, we will read the entire chapter. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow. And my years with sighing, my strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Lord, we wait on you this morning. Uh, It is indeed difficult at times to trust you in each and every circumstance, but we know that we can in each and every moment. You are faithful. And so, Lord, we trust you this morning. Be with our brother Al as he comes to bring us the word. Uh, Lord, draw our hearts to you, we pray in your name. Amen.
Thank you. Well, good morning. It's good to be here. And uh, I don't know about you, but, you know, I had something to do with a couple of the hymn choices, but not all of the hymn choices. God is good, isn't he? So look, uh, before we do a deep dive in the end of the Psalm 31 pool, I want to say good morning and especially thank you to all the moms that are with us today. Happy Mother's Day. You know, I know that um, you're all in various stages of motherhood. Some of you are in active duty right now. Um, There are times I know you start each day wondering if you'll have the strength to get through it. I can't say I completely identify with that because I'm not a mom. And God has given moms a peculiar heart uh, for that ministry, that ministry with, with their children. The job that you have requires great strength, great wisdom, great patience. And long-suffering is a word that is a probably more appropriate than patience uh, for some moms who go through it. And so you have this awesome, and I use that word carefully, awesome responsibility. It's probably the greatest responsibility of any of us in this life is to raise up your children. For those of you that have little children constantly in tow, uh, the physical exhaustion I know is also real. Those of you that have older children, you may not be in active duty right now, but you are still a reservist. And you may get called up at any time. What's amazing is that you never stop being a mom. Even if your children are in their 50s and have just joined AARP, you never stop being a mom. It's a job that uh, you'll never get rid of. I also understand that there are some women out here today that their heart's desire is to be a mom. And for whatever reason, in the providence of God, you haven't been blessed yet to be a mom. So I want to thank you for your heart and to encourage you that the Lord knows your heart and he will do what is right for you. So whether you're in active duty or whether you're a, revert, a reservist, I, I want to just start by a prayer for moms. Father, we thank you so much for our moms that are present today with us. I ask, Lord, that today would be a special day uh, that you would let the light of your countenance shine upon them today. Encourage their hearts, Lord, whatever stage that they are in, whether they're struggling with the fact that they've graduated from active duty or whether they're struggling with the fact that they want to be pressed into service. Lord God, meet their needs, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So I have a question today for you kids. So um, whether you're four or 24, 
think that covers, you get 25 you get a reduction in car insurance, so you're now an adult, right? So four to 24, you kids, uh, you like roller coasters? That's weird, huh? What a weird thing to say. This is not a self-portrait, by the way. Um, This sermon today, I'm going to talk about roller coasters, I'm going to talk about airplanes, and I'm going to talk about archaeology, where we're doing research on some ancient documents that we had to unearth. And nothing would honor your moms more than you asking them questions about this sermon this afternoon. Nothing would thrill their hearts more than to know that you paid attention. So whether you're downstairs and you're scribbling or whatever, hopefully you've got a piece of paper and you have a pencil and you can write a couple things down because there will be a couple of exams that will take place later today executed by your parents, your mom or your dad. So, you know, uh, Judy and I have spent the last few years out in San Diego during the worst months of the winter. Um, It's tough, but somebody has to go there. (laughs) Our daughter, Faith, and her husband, Josh, and our granddaughter, Emma, all live in San Diego. And this last year, we rented an apartment in a beach town. uh, And uh, it was right down the road, just a few blocks from an amusement park. And the feature of that amusement park, called Belmont Park, by the way, for Californians, was an old rickety wooden roller coaster. I don't know about you, but I love roller coasters. And if you're, even if you're like old, like ancient, like me, you can still love roller coasters. And the wooden ones are particularly fascinating. I don't care for the ones that are metal and they do the corkscrews and the loop-de-loops and all those kind of nonsense. But the wooden ones are cool because they're rickety. And they move a little bit. And they make great noises. It's like clackety, 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 clackety. And and one of the things we noticed is we had to drive by that park every day on our way to uh, our daughter's home. um, Is that people would stand in line, pay $9 to be scared to death on that rickety wooden roller coaster. And I began to see as we would drive by that roller coaster every day an analogy for life. Now, your first test, kids, is to ask your mom and dad, particularly your mom, what did he mean when he said an analogy for life? That's your first test for you to follow through with. How possibly could a roller coaster be an analogy for life, and in particular, our Christian lives? Well, roller coasters are great, and it's great to be scared and to have the earth drop out from underneath you and to travel at rapid velocities in the downward direction. But whether we experience a roller coaster or a literal earthquake or a figurative one, our souls are often shaken by the trials that we face in this life. And that's what this psalm is all about. That's what this psalm that we're going to look into today 
is all about. We're all going to face trials. And again, if you're four, maybe you face some trials. If you're 14 or 15, maybe you face some trials. If you're 20, 24, you face some trials, I know. We're all going to face these trials. Now, here's my thesis for this morning. My thesis is that we learn the most in what we would call the worst of times. We learn the most in what we would call the worst of times. I think you would agree that when things are all going well, somehow we attribute it to our wisdom or our great character or the good decisions that we've made. Or perhaps we even uh, think, well, this is just the way it should be. Things should go well for us in our lives. So this morning I really need to cry out, and, and I've been crying out that the Holy Spirit would enable me to speak to my own heart and to your hearts about this life and the challenges that we face. Because, as has already been prayed today, the word of God can change us. Worst case scenario is that we sit for hundreds, maybe even thousands of sermons And we walk away and say, well, that was nice. And the next day, or perhaps this afternoon, when your kids test you, you can't remember what it was about. Has that ever happened to you? We have great preaching. We eat, we feast on better than chicken barbecue. We feast on the meat of the word. And yet, our hearts get so full that it can roll off us like rain off of an umbrella. And so my, my hope is that today would be a hinge point in our lives, that we would believe that the Holy Spirit can change us and can conform us, even if we've been Christians for 40 years, that we can change our collective lives and, and, and we all know, for those of us especially that have been Christians for a while, that if the Holy Spirit doesn't come into our wooden hearts, we're just not going to change. I don't know whether it is that we don't believe it. Most of us believe it. We acknowledge that it's true, but we don't meditate. We don't chew on it long enough to change. Now, here's the cool thing about this sermon. I was all prepared to preach this sermon on New Year's Eve, December 31st. But y'all may remember that we had to cancel church that day because of a blizzard. So I've been chewing on this psalm for a very, very long time. But that's good for me, in particular, where the state of my head is. I need to really meditate on a passage of Scripture like this in order to get the, the, the nourishment from it. So in God's infinite wisdom, it's been delayed for five months, almost six So this morning, consider this as David's journal. So here is another test, kids. A journal is when somebody writes down their life's experiences. It's like a diary. And I'd like you to look at this as David's journal or a snapshot into the life of a real man who had real problems 
and really trusted God. It's a snapshot likely taken from the time in David's life when he was being pursued, not by Saul this time, but by Absalom, his son, and one of his closest counselors, he was being pursued in order that they might overthrow his kingship, that they might overthrow him and take over the kingdom of Israel. It's an archaeological find in that this was written thousands of years ago. And this has been preserved for us. So if you ever saw the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark or any of the old Raiders movie, uh, it, it, it tried to take the whole study of archaeology and put it into a context that was exciting and interesting to unearth these treasures. And this was one of those treasures written by a real man. And what's really great about the scriptures is that it shows us the good things on how to think or how to behave. And it also shows us how not to behave. The scriptures are balanced in that. as we see the positive aspects of some of these historical figures, but we also have the negative aspects of some of these historical figures, and specifically how they encountered trials and difficulties and tribulations that we will all endure at one point or another. Now this morning I want to introduce you to, and I asked Teresa to find a, uh, an illustration of maintaining your balance. Somehow she thought this would be appropriate for me. And... Um, but the, the, uh, I want to introduce you to the concept of maintaining your balance today, this morning, uh, with this wonderful uh, passage of Scripture. In particular, maintaining your balance in times of testing. In times of testing. And obviously, uh, there will be more on this later. And while it's fun to terrorize ourselves on a roller coaster, uh, Sometimes our lives lose the bigger picture when we're in the midst of trials and tribulations. We can get so focused on the tribulation, on the trial, on the difficulty, and especially at times of rapid descent. Now, there's a great illustration. Here's uh, test number three for kids. Because I'm not going to turn there, but in, in, in the Gospels, in particular in Matthew 14, verse 30, There was a time where the disciples were in a boat. It was late at night, and Jesus was not with them. And then they saw Jesus walking on the water. Y'all remember this? Jesus was walking on the water, and it wasn't a placid night. It was a night where the waves were pretty high. And do you remember when they finally recognized, they first thought it was a ghost, but when they finally recognized who it was, Peter who I love because he always speaks before he thinks, and I can identify with this. He says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. And you remember what happened. He gets out of the boat and he begins to walk. And what happens? It says in the scriptures that he contemplated the wind. Now, it's hard to contemplate the wind, but what he was contemplating was the fact that there were all these waves and he began to sink. But that's a great illustration of contemplating the waves in the midst of a trial and a difficulty. So you ask your parents to explain that passage to you today. Now, 
I love airplane analogies, and I do them just for George. But uh, let's fly in over the Psalm at about 5,000 feet so we can get a panorama. We can look and see uh, where a good place to land might be. So we're going to fly in uh, over this uh, Psalm and take a, a ten or five or 10,000 foot perspective. And, and what I want to show us is the correct way to respond to difficulties and an incorrect way to respond to difficulties and maintain our balance in all times. So in verses 1 to 3, and if you've got your Bibles open, just I'm, I'm not going to read uh, all these verses again. Joe did a great job of, of doing that. But in verses 1 to 3, you can see where the psalmist indicates his confidence in the Lord. It's confidence in the Lord. And, you know, I've said this before. I'm, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, but, you know, did I mention I repeat myself? So um, you can get your money's worth out of a psalm typically in the beginning, right? Hebrew writings are typically uh, wonderfully representative of a summary statement in the beginning. So if you, if you can only remember a couple of verses, then focus on the beginning of a psalm like this. And you see his great confidence in the Lord. In verse 4, he recognizes and acknowledges that there is a problem. They say that the first step to help is what? Recognize the problem. Acknowledge the problem. There are so many of us that can't deal with the reality of our situations because of fear that we won't even recognize that there's a problem. So in verse 4, David recognizes that there is a problem. In verses 5 to 8, he acknowledges the issues and he declares his trust in the source of his help. Now, verse four, uh, verse 9, and in fact, in this little portion from verse 9 to 13, he openly reveals that all of this is just too much. He can't handle it. He's overwhelmed. And he loses his balance. And I'll explain this in a minute, how we can see that he loses his balance in contemplating the waves, in considering his situation, in focusing in on the problem. He loses his balance. His grief becomes overwhelming. And he's like on the downside of the roller coaster at Belmont Park. And we could hear the screams from three blocks away. And it was fun the first week. And the second week is a little less fun. And after a bunch of weeks, it was, you know, come on. But you could hear the screams. And you could see and hear the screams in David's heart in this portion from verses 9 to 13. But then, verse 14. And it's like, if you're a, a pilot, like our brother George here, and you're in a power dive, okay? At some point, you better pull back on the stick and bring the airplane back up. And verse 14 is a hinge point in this psalm. It's nestled right in the middle. And it's a point where the downward descent levels off and he begins to ascend again, the hinge point here in this psalm. In verses 15 to 18, he places specific requests upon God, recognizing his sovereign and gracious ability to deal with matters that he cannot handle. 
That in and of itself is a series of sermons. Recognizing that we're in situations often that we just cannot handle. In verses 19 to 22, once again, David points out God's attributes and how he takes care of his own people. And then the psalm ends up in verses 23 and 24 where David advises us, his brethren, to trust in the Lord to deal with our adversaries or our crises and wait upon him. Now, I've preached on the psalms before here. Um, I think the older I get, the more the psalms speak to me, the more I resonate with the psalmist. But I love these psalms. And I want to remind you every time I preach through one of these psalms that when you read these psalms, there are three voices that we need to listen to. The first voice that we need to listen to is is this is written by a real man in a real problem on real earth. And it's been preserved for us. And we can learn from the testimony of our brethren hopefully, (laughs) and we can learn from our testimony of our brother David. So it's a real man, and he's counseling his own heart in this psalm. We need to do the same when we're in crises. We need to speak to ourselves. I know some of you already talk to yourselves uh, too much, but uh, in times of trouble, speak speak to your own heart. Secondly, we, we, we learn from these psalms uh, that it's a teaching me- me- uh, mechanism for David's brethren. This is also the voice of the church. This is the voice of the church. The first voice is the voice of David or the voice of a real man. Second voice is the voice of the church. But the third voice that we need to pay very careful attention is, is this is a prophetic record to illustrate the heart of our older brother, Jesus. To illustrate the heart of our older brother, Jesus. This is the voice of Jesus that we need to hear. Do you know, from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture is all about him. You believe that? Can you see Jesus' voice? Look at verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Now, where have we heard that before? Well, we heard it when Jesus breathed his last on the cross. So again, was David prophesying about what Jesus was about to say, or was Jesus just quoting David? Well, yeah. Yes. Look at verses 10 and 11. Doesn't verses 10 and 11, if the Bible's open in front of you, um, doesn't that remind you of Isaiah 53? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And verse 15. Let me just say this about verse 15. And our young brother went through some pretty heavy-duty surgery uh, just a couple of months ago. But we had verse 15 in that waiting room that day, didn't we? Psalm 31, verse 15. My times are in your hands. Rescue me from the hand of my enemy. 
and from my persecutors. That is a life verse. If you don't have a life verse, or if you don't have a a verse that you want to have put on your tombstone, here's a good one. My times are in thy hands, O Lord. And so this song, Psalm 31, is all about trusting God in every area of our lives and acknowledging the reality of pain. And as we look back, just to restate my thesis this morning, as we look back over our lives, we have to acknowledge that often the best things that happened to us were the worst things. I know that sounds like double talk. But oftentimes we learn the most in the times that are the worst. The best things that happen to us are oftentimes what we would say from our perspective were the worst things. So for those of you in advanced studies this morning, take a look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 3 through 13 and do a personal study on discipline from God. Amen? Beatons? The discipline from our heavenly Father. God doesn't mean to... This isn't punishment, brothers. (laughs) This is not punishment, even though from our limited perspective it can seem just that way. I'll give you an early takeaway, and that is that when we're in trouble, the hymn, turn your eyes on Jesus. When you're in trouble, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. For the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So uh, let's walk through this. Um, and I'm, I'm obviously not going to be able to go in any kind of depth whatsoever. I would urge you to take the psalm after we leave here today. Take some time. Read it through. Pray about it. Meditate on this. And learn for yourselves. But in verses 1 to 3, as I've already said somewhat, see the language of someone who knows that they're in trouble. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Never let me be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. Now, there's just so much here. As I said earlier, I wonder sometimes, for many of us, that we're so fearful to face real true issues in our lives that we avoid thinking about it. It's like the people that you know that are getting older but will not think about death. I mean, it's going to happen, people. But some people are so fearful they cannot even begin to meditate on the thought of what happens when I leave this earth. To think about it, our, our unsaved family, our unsaved friends, Oftentimes, it's hard to even engage them in a conversation because we have this so overwhelming fear that we avoid it. We avoid the discussions. We're so fearful. And oftentimes, we're talking about physical or emotional trials, but the Christian knows that oftentimes we're talking about spiritual battles here and that the enemies that are referred to oftentimes in the Psalms are not physical enemies. David, in his case, it was his own son, Absalom. Uh, However, in many cases, we're dealing with spiritual enemies. 
And the Christian knows we fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Constantly. Don't pretend that we don't. You know, it's easy to think of ourselves as holy until we try to walk as Jesus walked. (laughs) And then all of a sudden we realize we're fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? (laughs) But if we're not striving to walk, it's going to seem like, oh, I don't have that problem, right? Well, if you don't have that problem, it's probably because you're not striving. You're not trying to walk as Jesus walked. So David's journal is an honest evaluation of the reality of danger, but he also knows that he rests in the fortress of God and he stands on the rock that is Christ. If you're being washed down a river in a flood and you have no control and you're you know, splashing your arms and kicking your feet, you're going to grab a hold of the first rock that comes along and, or the first tree root or something that you can stabilize yourself. You need that rock. And these are the words. I mean, David's word choices are amazing. Be the rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You are my refuge. (laughs) Well, there's a whole lot in here. But these words, rock, refuge, fortress... David's comfort in the midst of this torrent, in the midst of this huge crisis in his life, are the attributes of God, and in particular, the immutability of God. That's a big word, kids. Immutability. Well, think about a rock. (laughs) You know what? The neat things when you go out into the desert and you walk around and you see the big rocks in Arizona or whatever is that those rocks were there thousands of years ago and kind of look the same way that they do today. They don't change. And immutability is an attribute about God. He is a rock. He doesn't change. He's the same today. He's the same as he was yesterday. And he's a, he will be the same tomorrow. David rests in the attributes of God. The attributes define the reality of David's hope. He only is able to provide sufficient cover and or rest and refuge for us. So we have to ask, and I will ask, and I will ask again, do you have the kind of a relationship with God that David is writing about here, where in the midst of crisis, he turns to the immutability of God as his only hope. Is your relationship personal? Well, let's continue to walk through the psalm. Verse 4, you take me out of the net, the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Now, When you look at the words that are in a passage like this, I want you to look at verse 4 and see three objects in this verse. And in fact, I would encourage you to write in your Bible. Some of you have this bibliolatry that says, I can't write in my Bible. But I would urge you to circle the you and put a one. Circle the me and put a two. And circle the they and put a three. 
And what we see in this verse is a balance of objects. You, me, and they. And what's also interesting about verse 4 is the tense that's used. You take me. Now, when, when David went through this, admittedly, he's coming back in history and writing about the experience, but the tense of this verse is critical. And no, I don't mean kids' uh, tense like pup tent or whatever, but I mean the word that implies that this is something that's already happened. The interesting thing about God's economy is he doesn't live on an hour-by-hour, day-by-day, month-by-month, year-by-year existence. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and he lives throughout time, not controlled or limited by time. And so, in a sense, David recognizes in the midst of his trial, in the midst of his crisis, that God has delivered him. Past tense. Eris tense. It's something that's occurred in the economy of God. And as I said, this is deeply personal and requires faith when we're in the midst of the downslide of the roller coaster. When we're in the midst of the earth shaking beneath our feet. When all of the things that were one time bedrock for us are shaking. We've talked about earthquakes before. I've been through a few of them. They are an amazing experience to remind us of how this life can oftentimes provide the kind of mobility that we're not looking for. So this has already happened. Now, if you don't have the kind of relationship that we talked about, you think about moms think, and dads. Think about when your children were little. For some of us, you put a grandchild in your mind, okay? And they get hurt. And they come running up to you, Mommy, 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 Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. Now, they do that because they assume that you can do something about their little crisis. They can also do that because they trust you. And because they have a relationship with you. And they assume that you love them. <laughs> Can you say, I have a relationship where I call God Abba? Which in the vernacular would be Daddy? Because in crisis, you better have a Daddy. Not a stony eternal, distant, judgmental God, but a daddy. John Piper, who many of us love, his foundational ministry is God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. But I will go, I will notch up from Piper and quote Spurgeon, He says, our statement of confidence in God during these times of testing and adversity is the principal method of glorifying him. Sometimes we wonder, especially if you're older and you're less active, how can I glorify God? 
You can most glorify God by trusting him when you don't know what's going on. Look at verse 5 in our passage. Again, I've already, I've already pointed out the fact that these were the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. When in the midst of receiving the wrath of God on the cross, he was able to say, into thy hand I commit my spirit. And keep reading, you have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Past tense. It's already happened in the mind of God. In the economy of God, when Jesus was on the cross, he says, you have redeemed me. Past tense. It's already happened. Uh, I think many of you know, because some of you are readers, that uh, when Luther died, he uttered these words. When Polycarp died, he uttered these words. Melanchthon, several other saints uttered these words in their last breath. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. These words are probably the richest that any of us could offer up at our own end. Bring comfort to not only ourselves, but to those that are around us. Look at uh, verses 6 through 8. In this psalm, he's acknowledging the reality of the situation that he's in. He's painfully aware of the details. Uh, but then I want you to really, if you don't take anything away today, take a look at verses 9 to 13. Because here David is illustrating how not to handle the problem. And the reason I pointed out before uh, the objects in a particular statement of David was to show that there was balance. But if you look at verses 9 through 13, it's I, 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 me, my. It's not balanced anymore. What's happened? The roller coaster has taken him down. And he's so focused on the crisis, he forgets somebody. And you know, when we deal, when, when we see this losing balance, I will say that the, 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 the issue that we face, regardless of the nature of the crisis, and believe me, I'm not minimizing the crisis. Um, most of you know what I struggle with. It can be devastating. (laughs) But turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. If we meditate solely on the problem and not God, David's spirit sank like a stone. It's like pushing the stick forward and just taking your hands off. The airplane's going to crash. The psalmist loses balance. It's all about him and his situation. The temptation in all trials is that they become the center of who we are. It's hard not to. It's hard not to. Those of you that have lost a loved one, a spouse, you wake up every morning, he's not there. Those of you that have cancer, you wake up every morning and you have cancer. Those of you who have various and sundry difficult trials, sleeplessness, whatever, you wake up or you 
stay awake and all you see is the problem. And it becomes the center of your life. It becomes your focus. Like I say, it's hard not to. And you know the best way to to do a self-diagnostic on this issue? Monitor your own prayers. Monitor your own prayers. Tape record if you have to. But if it's I, 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 me, 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 my, 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 you're on the downside of the roller coaster. Your plane is in a power dive. Monitor your own prayers. But listen, there's great hope because verse 14 follows verse 13. Isn't it funny how that worked? He's pulled back. On the stick, kids, do you know it? Airplanes don't usually have steering wheels. Well, some of them do, but they have sticks where you pull back and the airplane comes out of the dive. Sometimes it comes out under great G-forces, which is, I'm sure, great fun, especially in small airplanes. Great G-forces and you feel like you're pushed down on the seat, just like in the roller coaster. But in verse 14, David says... But, now whenever you see this little word, conjunctive word, it implies there's a change, there's a hinge point, like an elbow. But, 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 in the midst of all this grief, in the midst of all this trouble, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. Personal relationship, believing that God cares, Believing that God can do something just like when your little child runs up to you because he just stuck his finger in the, in the door or something. God can deal with the situations that we cannot deal with in our life. But, hinge point, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. And then the life verse, followed by the life verse. And Brian, you use this now in a lot of your hospital visits when people will let you, I'm sure, because Psalm 31 verse 15 is a life verse. And then oftentimes it's a life raft for people who are being washed down the streams of life. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. When the Lord Jesus was on the cross, he committed his soul, his spirit into God's hand. So also should we commit our times into God's hand. If God is good enough to deal with our souls, he can deal with our times, with our lives, with our crises, with the downside of our roller coaster rides in our lives. And then verse 16. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. This is the voice of a child in trouble to his Abba. When we pray for each other, 
pray that the Lord would make his face to shine upon the brother or the sister in the midst of the struggle. In the midst of the struggle. May they have a sense of God's attending to them with great, loving, tender compassion. Make your face. And David's using anamorphisms. Obviously, God doesn't have a face. God doesn't have hands. But when we're considering God as our Abba Father, think of him these ways. Make your face to shine upon. Well, let me just give a... a, I'm going to give you six takeaways. Sort of like, uh, this is what I told you. Why do I do this? Well, from my own self, okay? Sorry. Here's some, some takeaways. First, the psalm uh, may be considered messianic uh, because contained herein are the words of Jesus, our prophet. It's a messianic psalm. Secondly, in Jesus' earthly sojourn, he was the perfect man, the last Adam. He lived within the constraints of a man and can therefore enter into our grief. He was acquainted with grief. And so therefore he is our priest. What Brian prayed in the pastoral prayer today. Because he suffered, he can enter in and he can deal gently with those of us who also suffer. Third, Although he is our king, he humbly accepted not just the humiliation of manhood, but the rejection of the very people of God. He was scorned. He was abused. When he was hanging on the cross, people were just wagging their fingers at him and saying, see, see, I told you he was a phony. I told you he was a phony. God's punishing him now. Fourthly, as the Son of Man, Jesus faced the awful abyss of the cross. God not just turning his back on him, God not just abandoning him on the cross, but pouring out his infinite wrath on him, who became sin that we might become righteous. We just talked about that Sunday night at communion. What a great exchange. Jesus becomes sin so that we could become righteous. The greatest exchange in human history. Number five, as we face our personal crises, and we will, we must not allow it to become the center of our lives to redefine who we are. It can we'll be tempted to have it redefine us. For those of us that live in constant pain, it is so hard not to let that define us. But that is not who we are. Take a lesson from David and the things he did right and the things he did wrong, and don't lose your balance in your moment of crisis. If we live, breathe, eat, and sleep The problem is central to who we are. 
the less we will sense his presence or reflect Christ to others. Finally, because of how he suffered in our place, turn your eyes on him, fix your focus upon Jesus and not on yourself. You will only find disappointment looking at yourself or the situation and our lives will be characterized by routine instability. Joe and I have had uh, a fun dialogue on sanctification. And what is the normal Christian experience? And being an engineer, I like to plot things out, right? And I I show a, a graph of the ideal Christian growth And then I show the actual Christian experience superimposed on the ideal Christian experience where we're up and down, we're up and down, we're up and down. Well, let me just tell you that if you want to minimize those ups and downs, don't focus on yourself. Keep your eyes on Jesus. You want to see a lot more swings, radical swings, where we go from I'm not a believer today to tomorrow, you know, we think we're the Apostle Paul. If you want to have those experiences, just focus on yourself or focus on your situation, your problem. My advice is don't do that. I've been there. You've all been there. Anybody that's been a Christian for more than a couple of years has been there. Don't go there. Let me read uh, the verses of a great hymn uh, that uh, is not in our hymn book as far as I know. Uh, The hymn was written by William Lloyd in 1824, and the title of the hymn is My Times Are in Thy Hand. Old geezers out here have probably sung this hymn, uh, but many of you have not. My times are in thy hands. My God, I wish them there. My life, my friends, my soul, I leave entirely to thy care. My times are in thy hand. Whatever they may be, pleasing or painful, dark or bright, as best may seem to thee. My times are in thy hands. Why should I doubt or fear? My father's hand will never cause his child a needless tear. My times are in thy hands. Jesus, the crucified, those hands my cruel sin had pierced, are now my guide. Let's pray. Father, hear our prayer today, we pray. I pray that today we would be able to chew upon these things that were originally written thousands of years ago. I pray that we would derive benefit and strength. And Lord, deliver us from the temptation of focusing in on situation or crisis or trials. Help us to focus on you. You are our rock and our refuge. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.